All right, Nick, so it's July again, which is a very exciting time because we know that this means that there are new incoming residents to uh, OBGYN. Absolutely. Brand new faces. Welcome to labor and delivery. Welcome to the oncology floor. Welcome to the clinic, wherever you are. We hope that you're getting welcomed into OBGYN, and we want to make sure that you know about a great resource in OBG First and the OBG Core. So the OBG core, as many of your senior residents will tell you, is absolutely free to all residents. So we wanted to make sure that you know about that. And then also, again, you also will get access for free if you are a resident to OBG first, as well as the labor and delivery book from the OBG project. There are tons and tons of great resources through the OBG project. You can find them on their website at obgproject.com. But if you're interested in getting signed up for this premium product of theirs for absolutely free for all four years of residency, head over to our website, creagsrivercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and get signed up today. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creag's. Over coffee. All right, guys. So today we have a new episode for you guys on trans abdominal cerclages. Um, so, Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah, not a super common thing, but one that's good to know of. We'll talk about understanding the reasons for placing trans abdominal cerclage. We'll review the actual technique for how a transabdominal cerclage is placed, and then we'll talk about complications and delivery planning for transabdominal cerclages as well. We are not today just to kind of lump this into our learning objectives as well, going to discuss the various reasons for cerclage placements for all types of cerclages. You know, we have done multiple preterm birth prevention episodes, um, and we'll link to one that is our most recent that talked a little bit about this. Um, but you may also get some background information or other things to follow along in SMFM consult series number 65 that's brand new on transabdominal cerclage. So anyways, Faye, now that we've got our roadmap painted out here, let's get into it. Um, what do is kind of the background behind this of, of cerclages in general? Yeah. So as uh, our listeners probably know, preterm birth is still the leading cause of neonatal morbidity and mortality. Um, and cervical insufficiency, which is the inability of the cervix to retain a pregnancy, which can be characterized by painless cervical dilation until usually the middle of the second trimester. This is an important cause of preterm birth. Um, and overall, we would diagnose cervical insufficiency usually when there's a history of one or more second trimester losses after painless cervical dilation in the absence of labor or abruption. And so overall, cervical cerclages are indicated for those who have cervical insufficiency. And most of them, um, unlike our topic, are done transvaginally. And you guys probably have heard us in our preterm uh, labor or sorry, in our prevention of preterm birth episode talking about the McDonald or the Sherrod card method. And some of the indications that we've talked about there that we won't expand on here really is, you know, when you have a history of preterm birth less than 34 weeks and a short cervix, which is less than 25 millimeters before 24 weeks, or if there is some type of advanced cervical dilation before 24 weeks. So, to kind of transition, the background of the transabdominal cerclage, this is also an option for certain people, and it was first described by uh, Benson and Durfee in 1965. 
And the advantages of the transabdominal cerclage is really that potentially it can be placed higher in the cervical isthmic junction. So the thought was that it could potentially provide greater structural support for the cervix in those that have cervical insufficiency. Um, and the, another advantage is that it does avoid the presence of a foreign body in the vagina. And so that can decrease the risk of PPROM or um, uh, intraamniotic infection. But the disadvantages of the transabdominal cerclage is that it is a more morbid procedure and a more complicated procedure overall because you, of course, need to have abdominal access. So you do need to make some type of abdominal incision. And then there is some extensive dissection that may occur and it will later on necessitate cesarean delivery. All right, so that's kind of like the big background to all of cerclage and how we got to transabdominal cerclage, Nick. But Tell us a little bit about when a transabdominal cerclage is actually indicated. I think this is what our read, our listeners want to know. Yeah, you know, we kind of mentioned at the beginning, this is not something that you see super commonly, and that's very true. You know, transabdominal cerclages are usually not offered as a first-line treatment for cervical insufficiency. And this makes sense in a lot of ways. This is a lot of increased morbidity um, with the placement, as well as the fact that ultimately these patients do need C-section for delivery. And we'll get more into delivery planning and such down the line. There are exceptions to this um, it's really where, you know, a transvaginal cerclage would be very difficult to place. So it sort of removes your transvaginal cerclage from those first line treatments. You might find this in somebody who has like a history of multiple leap procedures in the past, or if they've had a trachelectomy before. Um, but again, for most individuals we encounter, a transabdominal cerclage is not going to be the first line thing. Transabdominal cerclage is going to be used more frequently in patients who have a history of unsuccessful transvaginal cerclage placements. And that previous unsuccessful transvaginal cerclage is getting defined in this consult series as a spontaneous delivery occurring before 28 weeks of gestation in the presence of a cerclage. Transabdominal cerclage has helped to reduce the risk of preterm birth compared with a repeat transvaginal cerclage in a patient with previous delivery under 33 to 34 weeks gestation. Um, so this is kind of the group that you're going to find is recurrent preterm birth even with a transvaginal cerclage in place. Now, the multicenter abdominal versus vaginal randomized intervention of cerclage or the MAVERICK study is a good one to know here with respect to why or how a transabdominal cerclage is going to be placed. It was a randomized controlled trial that compared the use of a transabdominal cerclage, a so-called high vaginal cerclage, and a so-called low vaginal cerclage amongst patients with a previous miscarriage or preterm birth sometime between 14 and 20 weeks between 14 and 28 weeks of gestation um, who had had a transvaginal cerclage in place for previous pregnancies now transabdominal cerclages in the studies were performed as either an open procedure prior to pregnancy or up to 14 weeks and then the vaginal cerclages were all done between 10 and 16 weeks of gestation 
In this study, preterm birth rates under 32 weeks were significantly lower with transabdominal cerclages compared with both a low vaginal cerclage, where the difference was 8% in the transabdominal cerclage group versus 33% in the low vaginal cerclage group. And also it was better than high vaginal cerclage, again an 8% versus a 38% incidence of preterm birth. The relative risks here were both around 0.2. So when you look at that, the number needed to treat to prevent one preterm birth with transabdominal cerclage compared to a low vaginal cerclage would be 3.9, and with a high vaginal cerclage was 3.2. So at least on the basis of this study, that's pretty compelling, potentially, if you're somebody that yeah. looks through the lens of, I want to prevent preterm birth in this super high-risk population. Um, so really interesting stuff there. Um, so we should keep talking about it because it obviously seems like it could be valuable for some patients. Right. Um, well, Faye, how exactly is a transabdominal cerclage done if we decide that that is potentially what a patient needs? Yeah. So, you know, we're not going to go into full detail here because that's really beyond the scope of this podcast. Um, I, I don't expect anyone to go away from listening to the podcast fully capable of performing a sure. abdominal cerclage. <laughs> but I do think that we should talk a little bit about the two methods that are currently in use, one of which is the open technique and the other, which is the minimally invasive technique. So the open technique, uh, usually it can be done under general, it can be usually done under spinal or regional anesthesia is most common. Um, it's done with a fan and steel incision. So basically it's, it's an, it's an X-lap. Um, the uterus is then exteriorized and the surgeon identifies and palpates the uterine vessels bilaterally. They then have to retract those uterine vessels laterally to create an avascular space between the uterus and the vessels in the broad ligament at the level of the internal os of the cervix. At that point, a non-absorbable thick braided five millimeter suture, which you know um, usually is going to be marceline tape, is guided through that space uh, with a right angle clamp on the needle. The suture is then either tied anteriorly or posteriorly um, and is left in place for the duration of the pregnancy and usually actually for the rest of the patient's life um, if it doesn't need to be taken out. This can be done both before the pregnancy, but it can also be done during pregnancy, usually in that first trimester. Um, the second way of doing this um, is the minimally invasive technique, which is becoming more popular um, as minimally invasive surgery is becoming more popular in the United States as well. So there have been many different techniques described using both traditional straight stick laparoscopy as well as robotic surgery, um, as well as single port site lapros laparoscopic surgery. Um, but most of the techniques that are described in the literature will use um, some, port of, some type of three-port laparoscopic approach, some with a four Fourth suprapubic assistant port as well. Usually if it's done before pregnancy, which is when many of these are done, there will be a uterine manipulator in place. Um, and again, what's going to happen is that they will visualize the uterus um, and then there will be some dissection of the uterovesical and paravesical spaces to make a window in the broad ligament through which the suture is placed. So again, you're basically trying to create that space between the uterus and the uterine vessels. 
The suture uh, used can be the same, so that, you know, Merceline tape. And some places have described using monofilament, non-braided polypropylene suture as well. Again, the suture is going to be tied anteriorly or posteriorly, and it's going to be left in situ throughout the duration of the pregnancy and potentially for the patient's life and could be used again if the patient wants to have a second pregnancy. So I think, you know, the question, of course, then is if there are all these ways of putting in a transabdominal cerclage, Nick, so which is better? Should we do it laparoscopically, minimally invasively, we mean, or open? Which one is better? Yeah, you know, this is kind of an evolving area because, again, this is not a common procedure. And then laparoscopic transabdominal cerclage is fairly new. But studies are showing that laparoscopic transabdominal cerclages are associated with less risk of blood loss, shorter hospital stay overall, but the laparoscopic procedures do take longer than doing the open procedure. There are some studies, though, we should give credit to that demonstrate really no difference in blood loss, no difference in operative time, and no difference in hospital stay, so really kind of a wash. There are similar rates of pregnancy and miscarriage after both laparoscopic and open transabdominal cerclage placement. Um, and really a lot of studies have also shown sort of as we get to the end, know a similar preterm birth rate for under 34 weeks with both approaches. But as of yet, there are not any randomized trials comparing the two. So as of now, really, no, it is... Uh, the surgeon's experience and preference that are there, both laparoscopic and open transabdominal cerclages are acceptable. Um, and you have to just discuss that with the patient and sort of what they're, what they're up for. With respect to other kind of technique things that we'll just quickly mention here, um, in terms of tocolysis or trying to stop uterine contractions, there's not any evidence that's out there that suggests that tocolysis is helpful. Um, and again, in terms of time of placement, as Faye mentioned earlier, ideally this is placed in before pregnancy or in the first trimester. But if there's an indication for transabdominal circulation and it's after this window, placement up to 22 weeks of gestation can be considered. Um, but again, ideally pre-pregnancy or in the first trimester. Okay, Faye, so let's say that we have a patient who either with us or came from somewhere else, they have a transabdominal cerclage in place, they're coming to see you now for pregnancy care or for ongoing consultative care. What exactly should we be talking about with these patients and how do we manage their pregnancies differently if we manage it differently at all? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, first of all, hopefully an MFM consultation has already been done before the transabdominal cerclage placement is done, uh, mostly because a lot of times uh, there needs to be a very in-depth risk-benefit discussion with the patient about who is eligible for that transabdominal cerclage and how it should be done, right? Um Afterwards, these patients can actually go back to routine OB care, um, but there can be continued MFM consultation if more questions arise. I do think, though, that there are some questions that, you know, um, that can come up in these pregnancies, one of which is, you know, should we continue to measure transvaginal cervical lengths in someone who has a transabdominal cerclage? Um, and while several studies show that although cervical shortening after cerclage may 
be associated with the increased risk of preterm birth, cervical length doesn't actually directly correlate with outcomes after a cerclage placement um, is done. And we do know that rescue cerclage, meaning putting in another cerclage, um, if there is a short cervix with a cerclage in place, doesn't actually improve outcomes in, in, the, in that setting of having a short cervix after a cerclage has already been placed. So really, you know, you're not really, there's no real intervention that you can do if you see that the cervix is short after you place a cerclage. Um, and so SMFM doesn't actually recommend routine transvaginal or transabdominal cervical length screening for patients who already have a transabdominal cerclage in place. Obviously, it's very different if you don't have a cerclage in place already with a history of preterm birth. The second question that I think a lot of people have is, you know, what about progesterone use, both IM and transvaginal progesterone use? So in the Maverick trial, 27% of the patients overall used some form of progesterone, and 17% um, in the transabdominal cerclage group used it, compared to 28% in the high vaginal cerclage group and 48% in the low vaginal cerclage group. But, you know, the thing that complicates this is that since that trial, the FDA has withdrawn approval of IM progesterone of McKenna or 17-OHP as we call it. So really right now, the only thing that we have available in the United States um, in terms of progesterone supplementation that has been studied is that transvaginal uh, progesterone. And so the benefit of adding vaginal progesterone in treatment regimens of patients with the cerclage overall is still relatively unknown. And so um, SMFM does recommend having a risk-benefit discussion of supplemental vaginal progesterone to be undertaken and then having shared decision-making um, between the physician and the patient about whether or not vaginal progesterone is actually going to be helpful. Now, um, at Penn, uh, when, where I was training, a lot of times what we would do is if a patient was already on progesterone for whatever reason, you know, we didn't take it away. Um, this was usually more in the case of someone who was receiving some type of uh, rescue cerclage, you know, uh, or an ultrasound indicated cerclage. Usually it's not in someone who is coming into the pregnancy with a transabdominal cerclage, but really, you know, we didn't start them on progesterone if they uh, were not on progesterone and had gotten their cerclage. Um, what about you, Nick? Do you, what did they do? Uh, were you trained? Yeah, you know, Faye, honestly, I think that sounds very, very similar is that um, just have that risk-benefit discussion. If they were already on it, we weren't necessarily looking to take it away from them. Um, and if they weren't on it already, we weren't necessarily cutting out and recommending it forthright. Um, but, you know, there's always some of those patients, too, that's it's hard to argue with, um, well, I had my last pregnancy and it worked, so I want to do it again. Um, that's that's one of the hardest things, I think, about this as we venture off into the shared decision-making conversations, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think some of the other questions that people may have when a transabdominal cerclage is in place, you know, the, the answers that we have for these for transvaginal cerclage sometimes is, well, you remove the transvaginal cerclage if there's some type of complication. But, you know, what happens if you actually have a pregnancy loss um, and you would normally manage that pregnancy loss with like a dilation curatage or dilation evacuation and you have a transabdominal cerclage in place, Nick? Yeah, you know, believe it or not, um, 
DNA can be done with a transabdominal cerclage in situ. There's a large retrospective study of 142 patients referenced in the consult. Um, these patients had transabdominal cerclages, and 14 of them underwent 19 DNA procedures, though qualify that that 15 of them occurred at under 12 weeks. Um, so osmotic dilators and standard surgical techniques were used, and no major complications were reported. SMFM in the consult series ultimately recommends that pregnancy loss be managed with DNC or DNE with the transabdominal cerclage in situ or with uh, standard obstetrical management after laparoscopic removal of the transabdominal cerclage depending on gestational age. Now, and some of these later gestational age things are going to be a little bit more tricky and require a lot of local expertise. Um, so again, maybe a reason to refer back if patient's coming back to you with one of these in place. Finally, Faye, um, we mentioned at the top sort of a bit about delivery that cesarean is going to be recommended, but what else do we need to know exactly about delivery, timing, mode, et cetera? Yeah, so as you said, when someone has a transabdominal cerclage in place, a C-section is definitely recommended, and actually the um, transabdominal cerclage is not removed. Um, the reason that we recommend C-section is because there have been case reports of uterine dehiscence or uterine rupture um, when patients who have a transabdominal cerclage come in in labor. And so the recommendation by SMFM is that the delivery timing should be similar to someone who's had a previous myomectomy. So that's going to be somewhere between 37 weeks and zero days to 39 weeks and zero days. And again, if there's no reason to take out the transabdominal cerclage, that cerclage can actually lead be left in situ for future pregnancies. And you can get pregnant through that transabdominal cerclage. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this transabdominal uh, cerclage episode. So why don't we go ahead and summarize? Absolutely. So we start off with some background surrounding cerclages. Remember, preterm birth is still the leading cause of neonatal morbidity and mortality. And so we've talked about on the show before a lot about cervical insufficiency and history of preterm birth and the indications for cerclage. But transabdominal cerclage in particular is an advantage in that it can be placed higher and may provide greater structural support. The disadvantages though is that this is a potentially more morbid, more complicated surgery because it requires abdominal access and ultimately will necessitate cesarean delivery. We then talked about when a uh, transabdominal cerclage is indicated. We talked about the fact that it's not usually offered as a first-line treatment unless there's no way of placing a transvaginal cerclage, but more often it's usually for people who have uh, an unsuccessful transvaginal cerclage, meaning that they had a spontaneous delivery before 28 weeks with the transvaginal cerclage in place. We also dis discussed the MAVERICK study, which was a randomized controlled trial looking at transabdominal cerclage versus vaginal cerclage and people who have previously failed the transvaginal cerclage. And there certainly is a decreased preterm birth rate less than 32 weeks in those who had a transabdominal cerclage. Transabdominal cerclages can be placed either via an open technique through a fan and steel incision or via a minimally invasive technique with straight stick laparoscopy or robotics. 
Generally speaking, though, the bottom line of these techniques is pretty similar. You're going to end up retracting the uterine vessels laterally to create an avascular space between the uterus and the vessels in the broad ligament. And then you're going to place a non-absorbable suture, usually something like a mersaline tape, um, and tying it either anteriorly or posteriorly and leaving that suture in place. There are some studies that are trying to compare the two approaches, but none has been shown to be superior at this point. And then again, tocolysis is not uh, evidence-based for this surgery. In terms of management of the pregnancy after a transabdominal cerclage, usually we will have MFM be involved even before the transabdominal cerclage is placed, but certainly they, patients can be referred back to MFM if there are any questions, such as if there needs to be continued measurements of transvaginal cervical lengths. Really, we don't recommend routine transvaginal cervical length screening after a transabdominal cerclage has been placed, and the use of progesterone is still... Um, a bit controversial where there should be a risk-benefit discussion with the patient overall. Finally, if a pregnancy loss occurs, DNE can be done with a transabdominal cerclage in situ. Osmotic dilators and standard surgical techniques have been used, and this has been described. Though, of course, at later gestational ages, this may require multidisciplinary consultation. Timing of delivery is recommended at the same time as a patient who's undergone previous myomectomy at 37 to 39 weeks. And remember, transabdominal cerclages are not removed, so these are going to be left in situ for future pregnancy. All right, Faye, well, I think that does it for today. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go onto your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Creags Over Coffee One, on Instagram and Facebook at Creags Over Coffee. Or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash Creags Over Coffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. We'll have show notes for this show and all of our other episodes, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website. That's at www.creagsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, creagsovercoffee at gmail.com.